0: You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at bonecur.net. That's b o n c o e u r.net and use the code
1: citycast 20
0: Since 1996, bow tie wearing Representative Earl Blumenauer has been the collective voice of Oregon's 3rd Congressional District which includes the city of Portland. A big reason we're considered a bike town is because of his policy work. His first year in Congress, he founded the Bipartisan Bike Caucus, which promotes cycling by improving public infrastructure. And because of all this, he's had a bicycle and pedestrian bridge named after him in town. His time in Congress made a real impact on our city's livability. And recently he's announced not pursuing reelection next year. So today on CityCast Portland, we're asking him to reflect on his long political career, his thoughts on the state of our city, and who knows, maybe we'll even get the story behind the iconic bow tie. It's Tuesday, December 12th. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking
1: about. Because I do have a bow tie that I could put on. (laughs) If you can stand it, I won't put on a bow tie.
0: I mean, I'm not going to lie and say I'm not a little disappointed, but you know, I understand it's pretty early. I can,
1: I can put it on. I can, I can tie it without looking at it.
0: <laughs> okay, so this whole time I thought you had like hundreds of clip-ons. These are real bow ties.
1: I'm sorry? A clip-on? Oh my god. <laughs> what did you say? Is this a test? Are you you trying to insult me?
0: I'm so sorry, Representative Blumander.
1: A clip-on.
0: Oh, my God.
1: I know. The only ones I have that aren't tied are wooden bow ties.
0: Oh. I didn't even know that was such a thing. Oh. (laughs) Did you scoff at me?
1: You ought to do a feature on bow ties and be able to educate your team and your listening audience. Okay.
0: Thank you i we will take that to heart okay
1: good okay yeah
0: well thank you so much representative blumenauer for making time for us today
1: happy to do it
0: you know having been such a supporter of the cannabis industry for all of these years you're famously known for not having ever partaken in the vice uh as your team says so now that you're leaving congress Do you think you'll finally try it?
1: I've made clear that my goal for 50 years was to fully legalize cannabis. And I thought that if I actually used it myself before it was legal, it stepped on my message. So I'm still committed to legalizing it. Uh, I hope it happens in the last year I'm in Congress. We've had some great momentum. Uh, but I do think that it, it would uh, it would sort of undercut uh, the clarity that this isn't just something for me because I want to use it, because it's the right thing to do. So I'm going to hold out till it's legal, and I hope it happens this year. let me let me just clarify. If I or a member of my family had a condition that was amenable, to medical cannabis, I wouldn't hesitate. If we had a a child in our family with extreme seizure disorder, or people with traumatic brain injury, um, uh, chronic depression, uh, when there's an application for medical cannabis, uh, I wouldn't hesitate. And I don't think anybody else should.
0: Well, thank you for that message. Um, But we're all also crossing our fingers that this is the year, so you can retire in style.
1: <laughs> it'll take more than legalization of cannabis for that to happen <laughs>
0: <laughs> on a more serious turn you you've prided yourself on what
1: do you mean more serious <laughs> for- cut me some slack here oh my,
0: god. oh my god i i just want you to know that you are getting the best of me in a way that we didn't prep for and i am delighted good so thank good. you thank you for this
1: I've had you people in the media keeping me off balance for half a century.
0: You people. (laughs) He's coming out swinging. All right. You've prided yourself on working to make Portland one of the most livable cities in the country. And you've been pretty outspoken as of late about the challenges downtown. What do you think needs to happen first? Like The first thing to go on our way to fix Portland's ills.
1: Well, I think part of it is being able to pull people together with a vision of what we want to establish and where we want to go. I am very pleased with the leadership. Uh, it's been a delight to work with Governor Kotak. Uh, I've, I've worked, I think, with seven governors now. There's never been a governor who's been more focused uh, to try and help the largest city in Oregon. That's not to her political benefit. As you know, that doesn't that cuts both ways. But she understands that we're not going to have a full Oregon recovery if we have part of the biggest city in Oregon in free fall. And I think what we're going to be seeing here in terms of the reports from the task force, from people who are coming together picking their bits and pieces. Um, and I think we've seen signals from the city and the county, uh, metro, they're, they're on the same wavelength in a way that we haven't seen for some time. So these are all very positive developments. And I think we all need to pick our piece that we can contribute to the recovery of Portland because we all have a stake in that. That's true. You
0: mentioned Governor Kotek. you've been involved in her Portland Central City Task Force. By the time this interview uh, will air, that group will have already presented its findings at the Oregon Leadership Summit. How do you think those recommendations
1: will make a difference? Well, they're already making a difference in terms of the process. You know, as I looked around at the first meeting of the task force, it was, it was huge and diverse. And then there were some people, I identified folks that weren't there <laughs> and they were added to it. It was very inclusionary. Uh, it was intense. Uh, people dove in. Uh, they didn't feel like they had to solve everything, but they wanted to have a direction going forward, a role for people to play, to have everything out on the table. And I think that's a very encouraging development. It took us a while to get in the condition that we're in. I mean. I have worked for 50 years to make Portland one of America's most livable cities. And it took a long time to get to that lofty position where we were sort of the gold standard. Well, we've lost momentum and we've had some problems. It's going to take a while to get back, but it's worth it.
0: Agreed. The first meeting that happened, local media pulled a lot of quotes, especially from Mayor Wheeler. And I'm just curious what you thought of his suggestions. He had a lot of them. Did you have a favorite,
1: maybe? No, that's, that's, that's fine. Ted has been in the crossfire uh, for years now. Uh, he had a lot on his mind. He has a lot of frustration. Um, and it's fine that he laid it out on the table. Uh, we shouldn't pull our punches. We should be clear about the challenges. We should be clear about our expectations. And it's not just the mayor. Everybody on that extended committee has a role to play and has strong opinions. But what I find is I come back to Portland every week. I hear from other folks who have their favorite approach going forward. They have their bone to pick. Uh, And I think it's very healthy that we're watching people lay these things on the table. As I mentioned, I think we're seeing some real progress. I convened a group in the spring, over 40 people who have the ability uh, to to handle the behavioral health challenges. Everybody who had a key role was in that room, including the mayor, Um, watching people come together, sharing their objectives and move forward. It's clear that we have some tremendous resources. The public has been very generous with the city, with the county, with Metro. The legislature stepped up with some of the unexpected revenue increases and invested them in behavioral health, but also helped with education and helped with uh, local government. Um, These are very encouraging developments. We have the tools to make a difference. I mentioned that group that I convened in the spring, having everybody around a great big table. Everybody agreed that the challenge was not a lack of money. I mean, there's never enough money to do, you know, the sort of the endless opportunities to deal with behavioral health, with criminal justice, uh, dealing with addiction, uh, public safety. But the challenge we have now is not a lack of resources. It was being able to take the resources that we've been given by the public, by the state. A lot of federal money is sloshing around that's still working its way through the system. Our challenge now is to be able to figure out how best to deploy them. And then it's all about execution.
0: Right. I mean, it's been reported that the county and the city have had excess of funds for uh, dealing with a housing crisis and the houseless issues. And that's caused a lot of frustration. Yes. Has that been something that's also been discussed in these closed door meetings?
1: Yes. People acknowledge it and understand. Yeah. And people are committed to figuring out how we do a better job of delivering. And that, by the way, is everybody's job everybody needs to find out what they can do to help our community move forward solving problems rather than creating new ones. And I'm I'm excited about the way people in the public have embraced this mission. People are frustrated, they've had problems, but they understand that the only way we're going to uh, be able to get through this is by being focused on solutions, working together, and delivering results. And I think that's the expectation now, and uh, I'm, I'm encouraged by that.
0: Yeah. It's so hard as a regular citizen to know how, where you can help, you know? Like where your role is, because right. everything feels a little... Hard to see through in a sense, yeah. especially our convoluted, and I'll say it, convoluted yes. city government. It's really hard to know where to go, who's doing what, what's happening. So that's something that I hope moving forward, um, there's a little bit more clarity on.
1: But in our defense, uh, this is a challenge in communities across the country. I talked to my colleagues. Uh, I follow the, the work in some of America's most successful cities that don't look like they're that successful anymore. Um, everybody is challenged. We've had problems with workforce, with supply chain. There are people who are really cranky <laughs> uh, and throwing curves. So it's harder for us because it's our community. Uh, but this is, we're not unique. Uh, there are problems across the country and I'm hopeful that we're going to see more progress uh, in the months ahead on our shared concerns and our shared problems.
0: All right, well, let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, Representative Blumenauer's hardest job. I feel like you have a very unique advantage because you've served in the Oregon House, you've served on the Multnomah County Board of Commissioners you've been you know in the Portland City Council before heading to congress i'm just curious out of all of these jobs which has been the hardest for you
1: well they they had different challenges uh, for me being in that very exciting legislative session in 1973 and then for two other sessions where I was able to chair the revenue and school finance committee, work on tax reform, uh, education. There was an air of excitement and possibility in a way that we haven't seen at the state level. I, I was privileged to be a part of it. Being in local government, when we negotiated some changes between the city and the county uh, to do some functional consolidation and be able to provide a financial underpinning by specializing our efforts. And then 10 years as Portland's Commissioner of Public Works where I had a chance to, to deal with this livability agenda up close and personal. It, all of these are, are, are different challenges, uh, but nothing has been as frustrating as what I've experienced in the last year with a manifestly dysfunctional Congress and a legislative majority of, you know, I'm trying to think of a polite way to describe the dysfunction of the Republicans who can't even agree with themselves. That's been the most frustrating. It hasn't been hard because we haven't done anything. Yeah. If, <laughs> if we were able to actually legislate, there'd be a lot of things we could do. Um but, th- but there are different challenges, uh, and each one in its own way was very rewarding.
0: So you've been in, po- in Oregon politics since, you know, for 50 years.
1: What do you think has changed? Fifty-four, if we're going to be...
0: Fifty-four!
1: I started as a, as a college student working full-time on the campaign to lower Oregon's voting age and then shifting seamlessly in the ratification of the constitutional amendment for a national 18-year-old vote. And then a year later, I stepped into the Oregon legislature. Uh, so it's, it's 54 very interesting years.
0: Wow. So for 54 years, and thank you for that correction. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what has changed in Oregon politics?
1: Well, it's a, a recent development that I find troubling. Is that there's too many people who've sort of lost hope, that are frustrated. They don't see a path forward, and that troubles me greatly. One of the high mics uh, of uh, the previous 51 years was a sense of possibility that uh, we really felt that we had control over our fate, uh, notwithstanding a whole host of challenges. There was more uh, optimism, there was more engagement, and that's been a problem. Even uh, the last uh, two years in Congress were my most productive. All this work that we did with the Inflation Reduction Act and the uh, energy provisions, uh, the infrastructure, the chips, all of these things that we've been dreaming about and working on back to uh, the Obama administration and before, it all came together. It's a little frustrating that people don't appreciate what we've got in front of us in terms of unprecedented opportunities to rebuild and renew America and to do so in a way that is equitable and a low-carbon future. And we've worked for years to get to this point, and I fear that a lot of people don't fully appreciate where we're at and what we can do.
0: Candidates are lining up to replace you. There's been a a few who've already put their name in the hat. So, curious what your advice is to them.
1: Well, I would hope uh, that uh, the men and women who are lining up to occupy one of the best congressional districts in the country, I don't, uh, modesty prevents me from saying the best, uh, (laughs) but it's a tremendous opportunity to serve. I mean, people here care. Uh, We've got a great foundation, Uh, even with our troubles, our neighborhoods are strong. The local economy is intriguing. What I would hope is that not just whoever takes my place, but the men and women who campaign to occupy the position will respect what we've done over the years to build upon it, to learn from it, and engage the public in uh, solutions that bring people together rather than divide them. And I've got some suggestions about how to do that. It's a blueprint I've worked on. Uh, It's not a secret. And any of them are welcome to take any piece of that legacy and run with it.
0: I haven't heard officially that you're totally retiring. Do you have any possible plans politically moving forward? Can I suggest running for mayor? I don't know. Just a thought. I'm sure someone's floated that to you?
1: I've heard that uh, on (laughs) a number of occasions. I'm trying to make clear that what I want to do going forward uh, is, first of all, not to have another 80-hour-a-week position. I've I've done that. (laughs) I don't need a beeper on my belt. I don't have to deal with individual crises. I want to have a chance to focus on family, on fitness, and fun, not being on airplanes for... 14 hours a week, and to be able to go back and work on the things that are so satisfying and that there are opportunities going forward. I'm I'm developing sort of a packet that I can hand off to people who come after me and others who are going to be in Congress this session uh, to be able to to build on, if I can modestly say, a legacy. Uh, What I want to do is finish the job. These are things that are extraordinarily satisfying and important. I'm not going to be able to do all of them. I'm not going to try. But I want to put a bow around the work that we've done, put it in a position where it can be handed off, and to be part of the conversation in our community, building on that. I want to do everything I'm doing now, but not run for office, not spend half my time in meetings that are Frustrating and don't necessarily move forward. I don't want to have to deal with a dysfunctional Republican minority that can't even agree on why they're impeaching Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. That adds no value. But these other things, I think there are opportunities. And that's what I want to focus on. I want to engage people. I want to continue to learn about it. And if there are any of these areas where people think I can add value, I want to be able to do that. I want to do what I'm doing now without the politics and the airplanes.
0: Right. What does that look like? Like, what would that be, do you think?
1: Well, I'll find out. I mean, there are people that um, want to follow up in terms of work we've done implementing this fabulous uh, array of investments that I've been working on back to the Obama administration to be able to rebuild and renew America and our community, working with the Biden administration to be able to get these monies in the hands of people who need it, being able to finish the job in terms of working, for example, to help the Afghan and the Iraqis who helped Americans in a war that I was adamantly opposed to, but we can't leave them behind. That's work that needs to be finished. Uh, agriculture reform. Um, we need to stop subsidizing a diet that makes Americans sick. One of the exciting things this year is we've got a waiver from the Biden administration that allows us, with our Medicaid money, that health care money. It's a it's a huge. Uh, some we have a chance to use that to subsidize healthy food and housing. This is an unprecedented opportunity.
0: Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah.
1: These are all things that it's about implementation and follow through, and I'm I'm excited we got to this point. But this agenda that I've been working on all my adult life and maybe <laughs> maybe longer, uh, I want to continue on it.
0: Could I suggest one more one more option? Yes, ma'am. Podcasting. Just think about
1: it. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to experiment with you. <laughs> okay.
0: Okay. Last question. Um, I see behind you this really cool looking poster and it says, use public transport, save the city. And it, it, I mean, I could tell it just has this like very cool seventies feel and the colors and everything. I'm wondering what is your favorite bike route? In Portland, other than the one that has your name on it. (laughs) No cheating.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It depends on what you're doing that day. It's being able to explore this community on bicycle and foot is a joy. Being able to find the hidden steps in Northwest or Northeast. Being able to ride through vibrant neighborhoods Uh, stop for uh, a latte (laughs) or at a bookstore. Um, These are unique and really exciting opportunities. And I never, never tire uh, from exploring these vibrant neighborhoods, and those are what's going to save us.
0: I didn't get an answer, though.
1: Well, that's like saying, gee, (laughs) what's your favorite winery or your favorite child? I mean, that that has- Loop de loop. loop. Done. That has no answer. (laughs) Okay, you can fine no <laughs> the I'm middle enough, one i'm enough of a politician i know, know. that's blumenauer but,
0: but it was like such an it was just an easy one it was just like which bike route do you like <laughs> best it wasn't like <laughs> we're gonna damn all the other bike routes to hell okay it's fine well representative blumenauer thank you so much for your service Thank you for spending a little time with us today. I'm really excited and I'm looking forward to what you do next.
1: So am I. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and we will be studying up on bow ties. Apologies for that. Cool. Could you could you just tell us real quick, like, what's the whole deal, though, with the bow tie? Was that a branding choice at very early on?
1: Well, it's it's kind of an interesting story. I occasionally wore bow ties back when I was on the city council. People were, some of the folks who supported me when I ran for mayor were mystified. How could you lose this? You're a natural. You did all this work, you had all this experience, these great, you lost the election. And a gentleman named Bill Nado, a legendary business person and visionary, said, oh, I, I, I think you you were too serious. People didn't <laughs> think you were you know, fun enough? Oh my. He said you know, that bow tie lightens, lightens up your image. So I started wearing bow ties uh, often. And as I went to Congress, Senator Mark Hatfield, who was one of my mentors, gave me some advice. He said, you know, you often wear a bow tie. I said, yeah. He looked at me and he said, always wear a bow tie. And I thought about it for a moment. And he was right. There were two people who were retiring from the Senate who always wore bow ties Paul Simon, who had connections with Oregon, and Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was kind of my idol in terms of livability. They were distinctive, they always wore bow ties, and they were leaving. And so I have always worn a bow tie every day I was in session, and people understood who I, who I was, who wouldn't have paid any attention to me. I didn't need to wear a member pin. With a bike pin and a bow tie, people, you know, kind of recognize me. It helps if you're kind of an obscure, average-looking person from a small Western state uh, to do something that's a little distinctive, and the bow tie worked for me. As a political
0: torch to pass on, I've never thought that the symbol would be a bow tie, and,
1: and that's beautiful. <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much, Representative Blumenauer.
1: Happy to do it. Thank you.
0: But now for your microdose of news. The price of the median U.S. home will drop 1.9 next year, according to projections from the website Realtor.com. At the same time, median home prices in the larger Portland metro area are projected to decline 7.4%. Those price drops will come even as mortgage interest rates are expected to decline. Also, U.S. Senator Ron Wyden has championed a way for schools to secure Medicaid funding for mental health care. About 40 percent of Oregon children qualify for Medicaid health insurance and schools will be able to use Medicaid funding to pay school psychologists and social workers thanks to an impending rule change. And Governor Tina Kotek's Portland Central City Task Force has released their recommendations. This collection of more than 40 business people, politicians, and others with a stake in downtown Portland have proposed more police for downtown, lowering taxes for downtown businesses, making it illegal to publicly use drugs, even if they are decriminalized, and the creation of more shelter space. Cotex office has also suggested declaring a 90-day statewide fentanyl emergency to focus resources on addressing addiction and its impacts. For even more local news and events, sign up for our daily newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll throw a link in the show notes. Well, that's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's.